Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everybody, welcome to LSE. I'm delighted to see all of you um, here and uh, I'm delighted and honoured to welcome four very distinguished guests for our panel discussion tonight. My name's Emily Jackson from the Law School at LSE um, and our guests from, um, from my far right um, to the left, first of all, Baroness Barker, who's a Liberal Democrat peer, who's been very active in uh, relation to surrogacy law reform um, in the House of Parliament, including being on the all-party parliamentary group on surrogacy. Um, Natalie Gamble, um, next to her, is on the UK's leading fertility lawyers, who's been involved in countless surrogacy cases in the UK courts. And she's also the co-founder of Brilliant Beginnings, um, a non-profit surrogacy agency. Kirsty Horsey, uh, next to her, is a reader at Kent Law School who's published several really crucial reports on the reality of surrogacy in the UK and also been involved um, in the Secretariat of the All-Party Parliamentary Group. And on my uh, immediate left, Isabel Carpin is Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. Currently, she's here as a visiting professor at um, LSE and she worked um, some years ago on a very large Australian Research Council um, grant on a uh, funded project on cross-border um, international surrogacy. So each member of the panel is going to speak for around 10 minutes, um, leaving plenty of time for discussion and questions. So Liz, I think um, if, you're, if you'd like to go first. Oh sure, okay. Um, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> uh, in uh, 1978, uh, my school bus used to uh, go past a building, um, and uh, it was a, an old uh, remnant of, most of it was the remnants of an old uh, Victorian workhouse, uh, and it was a hospital called Boundary Park. Uh, and in that hospital, uh, in 1978, um, a baby was born uh, and her name was Louise Brown and the people of Oldham um, who happened to have Boundary Park as their hospital, Boundary Park by the way excellent view of the pitch for Oldham Athletic I might say, um, the people of Oldham um, remain to this day incredibly proud of the fact that Louise Brown the, known as the first test tube baby was born uh, not in New York not in that London and definitely not in Manchester. She was born in Oldham and they are immensely uh, proud of that. And I suppose um, that and uh, the fact that I had always been keenly aware that I thought pe women in particular had the right to control what happened to their own bodies and their own fertility uh, led me in 1979 as a schoolgirl on that bus in uh, Oldham to vote for what's called the Liberal Party and that was because of a man called David Steele who in 1967 had been instrumental in passing uh, the, 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 the piece of legislation which began to uh, decriminalise uh, abortion. So I've, somewhere always in my political life I've had a belief that it was of fundamental importance that women in particular uh, should have the right to decide exactly when and how um, they control major parts of their life uh, and for that that it includes 
not having children, but also having children. Uh, and so, if, as I look back uh, over all the things that I've done in my political life, that's been a sort of constant and recurring theme. Now, surrogacy, I suppose, was not uh, uh, something which naturally sits alongside those two things, but um, being somebody who has for many years been involved in uh, the old parliamentary group on sex and reproductive health, which I now co-chair, it was something which uh, came in and out of my consciousness. And I think it was when, it, it was back in 2016 when your report came, came along uh, and when you did, uh, when that seminal piece of work was done around that report, where you went and talked to Mary Warnock about how she viewed uh, human fertilization and, and embryology um, 20, 20 odd years after she had passed, been in, she had been so instrumental in passing the initial legislation that it began to think. And I should say that I, you know, in the House of Lords, I did. Uh, take part in the um, the, the uh, reform, the reform, the act which reformed and updated the human fertilisation and, uh, and embryology uh, bill. So I've been fairly well steeped in it all, and it was that was the sort of path that led me to surrogacy. And I suppose my job on this panel is not to talk to you about the, the law in great detail, so like this, but, but I talk to you about the politics of it all. And the truth is that there are people to whom uh, surrogacy in any form is an anathema. It, it, this offends their beliefs. They just do not believe in it. Um, there are many other people who um, believe that surrogacy will happen. And if it will happen, and it will happen, it is better that it happens in ways which are regulated. And therefore, uh, it happens in ways in which women are not uh, exploited. And I think that that, uh, that view is the one that would be held by, the, is held, I think, by the majority of parliamentarians. It was certainly um, the view that would pertained throughout all of the discussions which, and debates which happened in Parliament, which were led by, um, led by Mary Warner. And we are, and, you know, I'm going to stick up for the House of Lords. I would, wouldn't I? But actually, I think that we are very fortunate that we have um, a political forum in which we can have very big ethical debates informed by people of faith and people of no faith and scientists and all, but in Parliament um, as we pass our laws. And we have those debates uh, in this country in Parliament rather than in the courts, largely in the courts. So um, it's been the case, I think, for about the last 10 years that in Parliament there has been uh, a body of people who you now think that the current laws on surrogacy um, work to an extent, uh, but they need to be updated. Many of the um, things that were put into the original law um, are essentially having to be worked around for the benefit of children, because I, I I have to say, in all the, the, the discussions that I've ever had with anybody on this subject, I have never yet come to, into contact with somebody who did not recognise that the rights of the children were of paramount importance. 
uh, and the, the question, I mean, there may be differences about, of opinion about what constitutes the best interests of the child, but that is uh, something which I don't think is, uh, is up for negotiation. And I also um, would say that politically, um, it is also the case that there is absolutely zero, uh, zero support for commercial surrogacy uh, in any form. That said, um, a number of people uh, would be, uh, a number of politicians of all parties um, would, would want to look at the law to try and see if we can change our domestic uh, laws uh, in such a way that we um, make it uh, easier for people to, um, for whom surrogacy is the correct uh, answer to their particular issues, uh, to do that uh, in this country rather than being forced to go abroad to another uh, jurisdiction. Um, I don't think that, uh, we've seen the Law Commission, we've seen the Law Commission uh, report, um, I don't see any great um, appetite. Well, I mean, pol politics in this country for the last five or six years has just been so nuts in many ways. There hasn't been a lot of space in which to sit down and really give time to um, what are, I would say, the more detailed, technical, non-party political issues. There are very few of those which have got parliamentary time. But I would say that this is one um, where the work having been done extensively by the Law Commission, it is probably right that after the next election, um, it may be uh, a, an area that comes more to the fore uh, in terms of uh, commanding parliamentary uh, time. And I think it's a, uh, when we have legislation, we probably will, will have to have, and should have, pre-legislative scrutiny of any bill that comes forward. Uh, we should take a lot of ev evidence, because we're now a bit, out, bit behind the times on recognising what's been done in other jurisdictions, and that's something that we always have to take into account when we change uh, our laws here. Um, but I would think that, I, w I think that if we do that, then um, I think that there would be um, a supportive majority for law reform, um, uh, and I would think significant, uh, significant law reform. Um, but, um, but I would put it just about that, at that point at the moment. And I'll leave it there, but I'm happy to ask any questions. Take any That's questions. That's great. That's a great way to kick us off. So we're just going to go right around the panel, and then there'll be time for questions, comments afterwards. So, uh, Natalie, please. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to be here um, and out and about in an in person event as well. Um, so, I uh, wanted to take you on a little bit of a journey back through kind of the history of um, surrogacy law, but also kind of my involvement in how things have evolved over the last 15 years or so. Um, I'm a practicing solicitor, so I'm kind of very much dealing with um, surrogacy cases and real families on the ground every day. Um, and I think all of us on the panel would agree that the, the law in the UK that was put in place for surrogacy was not well thought out on the basis of a considered policy review at the time. Um, it comes from two pieces of legislation, so the Surrogacy Arrangements Act, um, which was rushed through Parliament in 1985 in response to media coverage of the baby cotton case, and that deals with the kind of regulation of how surrogacy is arranged in the UK. And then the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act, which went through in 1990, in which surrogacy didn't really feature at all. 
Um, and the, the law that we have around regulating parentage through parental orders which reassign parenthood to the intended parents after the birth was tacked onto that law as a last minute amendment. And really, the, I mean, we've seen in the case law that the, the criteria for parental orders was almost kind of scribbled on the back of an envelope at the time. And yet this is the law that we have applied for thousands of families across the last 25 years. Um, and it really is time for a, a proper review of that law. Um, when those laws were passed, surrogacy was very rare. There was a lot of caution about it, both in terms of the ethics, but also the worry that there would be a lot of disputed arrangements, that surrogates might change their mind and want to keep the baby and that that would cause a lot of difficulty. Um, and I think as a result, the policy behind the law was very much, let's try and put a lid on surrogacy. We don't really like it. We'll try and kind of stop it growing and developing. But what actually happened is not that it didn't develop, but that it developed in ways that perhaps you know, were not the most desirable ways. So unregulated surrogacy within the UK has kind of proliferated both through organisations that actually do a very good job, but they are essentially completely unregulated. And more recently, it's developed through internet matches, social media, people getting together on Facebook. Um, and if you think of surrogacy as being one of the more you know, ethically concerning or challenging forms of assisted reproduction, it seems remarkable that there is no regulation for it, where there is so much regulation for everything else. The other thing that has happened um, a little bit more recently is that increasing numbers of parents have been going overseas to conceive through surrogacy arrangements in other jurisdictions. Um, but what we know at the moment is that there are around 400 parental orders granted by the court each year, and about half of those involve UK surrogacy arrangements, and about half involve parents going overseas. And what we see every day among the parents who are choosing to go overseas is that the things that drive them are firstly the lack of legal certainty around surrogacy arrangements in the UK, so the fact that they won't be recognised as the legal parents of their child from birth, even if they're both the biological parents, and the shortage of surrogates in the UK. And I, I think it's not just the shortage, but the, the lack of certainty around how they would go about finding a surrogate, when they might find a match, is this ever going to happen for me? Um, so, you know, that really does kind of colour the experience of, of parents who need the help of a surrogate. Um, the other thing that has changed, as well as this enormous growth in terms of how surrogacy has evolved, is I think our attitudes have changed so fundamentally since 1990 in terms of acceptance of different forms of families. You know, same-sex parents, solo parents, parents conceiving in different ways. Um, in 1990, I think there was an amendment on the bill that would have restricted all IVF to married couples. That seems unthinkable today. Um, but the law has not really caught up with this kind of changing world. Um, so, you know, our experience as a, as a law firm is that we um, kind of see all the things that people are doing in reality on the ground. You know, we see the really, you know, good arrangements where they set things up really thoughtfully. We also see the cases where things go wrong. And the experience is that disputes within UK surrogacy, so that kind of classic surrogate wants to keep the baby nightmare scenario that every taxi driver you tell your surrogacy lawyer asks you about, really doesn't happen. I mean, they're incredibly, incredibly rare cases. Um, but, you know, the challenges that people experience are that lack of recognition, you know, the fact that surrogacy is not treated as a, a legitimate form of family building within the law in many ways, in that people's shared intention is not recognised. Um, so, the, and I guess in terms of law reform and what's happened, we've been just out on timing. So we had the big review of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act in 2007 and 2008, and it was just before surrogacy really took off. Um, and I remember when that piece of legislation was going through Parliament, I was right in the middle of dealing with the X and Y case, which was the, the first case of parents 
we've had children born through surrogacy overseas and then sought a parental order. And we worked with a member of the House of Lords who raised, look what might happen if people go overseas. And it was all dismissed as, oh, this is very hypothetical, it might never happen. Well, it did happen. <laughs> um, but there has been kind of progress in the law since then. So particularly through the court system, what we've seen is the family court judges um, evolving the law in order to meet the demands of, you know, as Liz was saying, the best interests of the child. You know, wanting to get to that end result of making a parental order so that the child has legal security and having to deal with these back-of-the-envelope conditions to get to that end result. So the case law has significantly moved the law forward in terms of what those conditions look like. So, for example, the fact you must apply within six months of the birth. You don't anymore. You can even apply once your child is an adult. Um, the fact that the law intends to restrict parental orders to cases where only reasonable expenses have been paid, that's not an issue anymore. The court routinely authorised payments of more than expenses, both in UK and international surrogacy cases, and in recognition of different family forms. So the requirement that you had to be a married couple, which was then expanded in 2010 to include unmarried couples and same-sex couples, now we have... You know, people where people have died, where couples have separated. I've recently been involved in a case with co-parents who were not living together and they've been granted a shared parental order. So the, the courts have gone a long way in kind of bringing the law up to date, but there is a limit to how far they can go. Um, they couldn't stretch the law in relation to the consent of the surrogate, so we've had a couple of cases, including one recently in the Court of Appeal, where they've said even if an order is in the child's best interest, if the surrogate doesn't consent, that's a block to a parental order being granted. And they couldn't stretch the law to include single parents. So we had to work through that one by asking for a declaration of parentage, a declaration of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act, and then that led to a legislative change. But again, it was very much kind of through the court system. So the family court judges are saying, look, this needs to evolve, this needs to change, we're doing as much as we can, but you know, the law needs to be better. Um, we've seen some legislative changes which have kind of chipped away at the boundaries. So 2009-2010, we had some changes to embryo storage rules, British nationality for children who were granted parental orders. 2015, we won our campaign for maternity leave rights for, for parents through surrogacy. So there have been these kind of advances which have helped recognise surrogacy and kind of bring it into the main, around the edges of the main law. We've also seen policy, so the Department of Health has issued guidance on domestic surrogacy, now the Foreign Office has done the same for international surrogacy. We've seen the HFEA update its policies and forms to include surrogacy specifically. Um, and we've had really good government help when there have been crises. So in the last few years of world crises, we've had COVID travel restrictions, which has stopped parents getting to um, their babies being born in other countries. And then we've had the Ukraine war leaving um, babies being born in a war zone and needing to kind of evacuate them quickly and the government has kind of got on board with helping those families to bring babies home. Um, so we come to the Law Commission review from a perspective of um, surrogacy being accepted as a form of family building and broadly speaking being supported. Um, and I have to say, you know, whatever the discussions we may have about the Law Commission and their proposals, they have done an incredible work of diligence and very, very hard work at looking at this area which is so complex. You know, the integration of public policy objectives with child welfare objectives, different ethical views, international law, UK law, it's a really difficult area and I think they've done fantastically. But they were very clear in their report, provisional proposals that the starting point was that surrogacy is accepted, that we need to find a better way of dealing with it and regulating it. Um, and there are kind of some really good positives in the recommendations they've made. So parenthood at birth for parents through UK surrogacy, 
Um, and really having those kind of safeguards and structure in place preconception so that we are trying to kind of manage people through a process in a responsible, ethical way. That is what we see happening on the ground in general anyway. The non-profit organisations all encourage that. Um, but it would be really good to see that enshrined in law and then people's shared intention being recognised. I think the areas where um, it's a little bit more problematic is that there isn't enough in the report to deal with the parents who are going abroad for surrogacy. And there does seem to be this hope that, well, if we fix things in the UK, then there won't be so many people going overseas. Um, in reality, this still involves a large number of children who are being born in these situations. And you know, keeping parental orders in their existing form for those children, it, you know, the system is not working and that needs to be addressed as well. Um, so the last thing I wanted to say, just in terms of the Law Commission proposal, we're all desperately waiting to see the final report. Um, um, but I've had a lot of clients who come to me saying, oh, I've heard the law's going to change in the spring. Um, this is just the start of the road ahead. It's not the end of it. You know, post the publication of the report, we need government support to devote parliamentary time to it. We need parliamentary time. And even once new law is passed, I expect there'll be a, a fairly long implementation period if we're talking about setting up a system of regulation of organisations by the HFEA. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and we really need everyone's kind of support with getting on board with that and you know, making sure that that all goes in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Kirsty, how do we make this work? Um, so uh, it's going to be like a bit of a revision session, I think, after, <laughs> after what Natalie said. Um, but, you know, just for anyone who doesn't know, the Law Commission of England and Wales and the Scottish Law Commission are currently in the final stages of a joint project that they've been doing for a long time, longer than they anticipated, and their report and some draft uh, legislation should be out in spring, vague. Moment. We're not quite sure when that is, but we're coping kind of around Easter time. Um, so, as, as Liz said as well, the law that we have is nearly 40 years old, the, the, the first bit of legislation, and it doesn't align with how modern families see themselves, particularly those created through surrogacy. Uh, it doesn't align with how surrogacy works in practice on a day-to-day -day basis for the majority of people, as Natalie's just explained and it doesn't represent the best interests of children and their families. Um, even the law that governs legal parenthood is old now. Um, families have changed since 1990, very, very much so. Uh, I think the difference between you know, like how my kids talk about families and how I used to when I was a kid, and it's you know, completely different. Um, so, I'm just going to give a, a, a bit of a crawl, a bit of a timeline, it's kind of like Natalie's and you'll hear some of the same things again, um, but I've got, a, I've got a visual aid, <laughs> which might help. Uh, and the, I mean, this isn't even by any means all the dates uh, that are kind of there, so yeah, as I said, that's the 1985, so we have the Warnock Report 1984, and on the back of that, as Liz said, the, the, and, uh, and Natalie too, uh, sort of a knee-jerk response in the Surrogacy Arrangements Act, and that's what we've been dealing with ever since, uh, with the little tinkering around the margins that the two human fertilisation and embryology acts did, and they're the ones that they're the ones that contain the provisions that relate to legal parenthood. Um, so, and as always, like Emily and I have spoken, 
many times about how odd it is that family law provisions about parenthood are in a health act, but that's, um, that's a different point. And nothing really happened for a very long time. There's this sort of very sort of calm period, and you know, 2014 is the date I've got on there, but probably around 2009, 10, as it first cases started being reported as surrogacy. I mean, there was no surrogacy cases um, coming out from the courts for years. Like, nothing happened. There were some in the 80s, early 90s, but just like nothing. Uh, and then some of the overseas surrogacy cases started coming. And so that interest has peaked again, and, uh, and some people uh, started getting engaged with surrogacy again. Uh, and the calls for change started to come. So Matthew was instrumental in organising a debate in the House of Commons in 2014 uh, with a, um, MP Jessica Lee, who's no longer an MP, uh, but she held a debate and was very, well, I was rereading it yesterday, a very sort of, you know, very upfront in the demands for change and why those demands for change were necessary. And exactly what she said in 2014 is still absolutely right now. Um, at the same time, as Natalie mentioned as well, you've got the judges beginning to be critical of the law and you know, what, what they could and couldn't do within the framework of the law and having to stretch the law, which you know, in judicial terms is reading down or uh, interpreting or whatever, but you know, as we all know, the lawyers in the room know that there's only so far uh, that can be gone with that and there are some things you just can't interpret your way out of or you can't read down. Um, there we go. At that point as well, I was asked to join the um, Surrogacy UK working group on law reform. So Surrogacy UK is another one of the non-profit organisations. Natalie um, works with one uh, and Surrogacy UK is another, they're probably the two biggest, yes. Um, and that, that was about a campaign, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know, a grassroots campaign, if you want to call it that, coming from one of the organisations who deals with people who are creating their families through surrogacy and supporting surrogates. Uh, on, a, on a daily basis who wanted to push for change and to sort of look at some, you know, to actually get some data out there and, you know, and, and show how it is, show what lived experience really looked like. And we published the first report, um, from what Liz mentioned, in, at the very end of 2015, which was was you know kind of influential. Not it got Liz on board, and it also got um, another MP, Andrew Percy, interested as well, um, uh, which I'll come back to in a moment. Um, and things sort of move on. There's gradual support. Natalie and others are campaigning for legal reform. Service UK is campaigning for legal reform. Academics are writing about legal reform. Judges are talking about the, le the legal reform uh, as all comes to this. As Liz said, Mary Warnock. Uh, spoke out in person uh, in, that, in, in the debate and um, she wrote the co-wrote the foreword to the 2015 report as well, saying actually she'd got it wrong uh, when she looked at surrogacy in the 1980s, she'd made too many assumptions, she had um, her own feelings about her own, having her own children, what motherhood meant, and actually now taking a step back she could see a different view. Um, she did also acknowledge that times have changed and, you know, things have changed. She went on Woman's Hour and said the same thing and, you know, all, uh, all's good. So 
having her speak out and you know having the you know the, the courage I guess to say actually I've changed my mind or I've got it wrong or um, a combination of both those things was um, quite nice. At that point as well in 2016, now I've, someone did a count at a different event about how many health ministers there have been over the course of the last uh, however many years. But in 2016, the uh, Service UK Working Group met with the then health minister, who was very on board, and that was Nicola Blackwood, who is now in the House of Lords. Um, uh, but that was the start of getting the Department of Health engaged as well. And they were, you know, so at that point, that surrogacy became on, on their radar a bit more as well. Um, there was the, then later that year the debate in the House of Lords that, uh, that Liz led. Um, and again, there was, you know, there was support. It was cross-party support. It was very favourable. Um, and you know, things were sort of moving on. And you've got people in you know, one of the big places of power in the land saying, the law needs to change and to recognise uh, the realities of um, uh, modern families. Um, I can read that one from here. Oh, that's the same year the Declaration of Incompatibility. So 2016 was quite a big year. The Declaration of Incompatibility about the single people not at the time not being able to apply for a parental order was uh, issued. So there's a big, you know, a big call out then from a judge saying actually there's this one glaring bit of the law which is actually contrary to people's human rights. And then we're into 2017, that's when the Law Commission got this on their radar. So they were, at the time, so they, it's like a pre-consultation consultation where they're consulting about what they should consult on. Um, and so asking about what should be on their 13th programme of law reform, and uh, in their report they say they got the most responses ever uh, that they'd ever had about any topic, and that was about surrogacy. So it was almost a kind of shoo-in that, that that would become something with all the other groundswell as well that was going to be looked at by them. And the Scottish Law Commission joined them later. And both of them the, the working together, funded by the Department of Health, um, sort of gives a real sort of message uh, that this is going on. That year as well, the all-party parliamentary group on surrogacy was established. Um, and that's a, a group of... Uh, MPs and peers from all different political parties who, who are like-minded that surrogacy is here, it should be regulated, it should be better regulated, uh, and that, um, that uh, parliamentarians need to be informed, they need to, um, you know, they need to hear real stories, they need to read data, they need to uh, do a, this is a, one of the members of that all-party parliamentary group. And that sort of focus on lived experience carried on through 2018. As Natalie mentioned, that's the year the Department of Health published its guidance. So there's a set of guidance for people going through surrogacy, surrogates and independent parents, and there's a set of guidance for organizations uh, who might work with those people. Uh, and that, to my knowledge, is the first official government guidance that was ever published anywhere and gave a sort of real legitimacy, I think, to the idea that surrogacy was a, was a form of family building that could be done properly. Um, that year as well, the all-party parliamentary group held evidence sessions and invited you know, academics, lawyers, people who have children through surrogacy, people who work with surrogacy organisations, surrogates, crucially. Um, I think that was a voice that hadn't really been heard 
uh, until that that kind of time, and you know, and various others who have some connections on CAPAS, the um, Children and Family Court Advisory Service, and various others um, uh, gave evidence in those sessions for the APPG to sort of consider that evidence and come to its conclusions and write a report. Um, so James Mumby, who was the person who, the judge who, in, who made the declaration of incapacity, spoke at a conference that year uh, about the shortcomings of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act. Uh, so again, another sort of big voice in the debate, and that year also the remedial order, which is the answer to the declaration of incapacity, was passed. So now single people can apply for parental orders. You see that came into effect in the 2019 flag, which is also the year <coughs> commissions published their consultation document. And the consultation window was only about four months. Um, that was October uh, 2019, and they have been working on it ever since. Um, and you know, COVID delayed some things, obviously, but I mean, they were all working at home remotely. Uh, so you figure they were still working uh, on this consultation. I know they have to do other stuff about boring things like leases as well. Um, but uh, that work has been ongoing since that time, which again is a um, reflection of the number of responses they got to the consultation and the number of differing pieces of the jigsaw they've got to put together. Uh, in order to come out with some recommendations that work across, like, as Matthew said, sort of so many areas of law. There's, you know, tax, there's inheritance, there's uh, benefits, you know, everything that sort of needs to fit into this puzzle, uh, they need to sort of come up with a, an idea of. Um, and things have been a bit slow. There was COVID. The APPG produced its report on the back of the evidence sessions, which supported, surprise, reform. Um, and the Law Commission's continue, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. Um, these are the two reports that the Service UK Working Group published, and you'll see the, the calls. They're not very different from many of the things that have been changing in the courts anyway. Like one of the calls from the 2015 report was that single people who use surrogacy should be able to become legal parents, and that happens anyway, without a, you know, a legal review, but just via the um, declaration of incapacity. But there's various sort of um, recommendations about who gets legal parenthood and how, about who's able to access surrogacy and how, those kind of things. Also questions about advertising, because one of the things Natalie didn't mention is that no one can advertise for or as a surrogate or advertise their surrogacy services. And obviously there's a lot of soft advertising goes on via social media. But actually there's a question, why shouldn't these non-profit surrogacy organisations who are recommended by the Department of Health be able to advertise that they exist <coughs> and to be able to say, we can help you um, if, that's, if that's what um, will help legitimise um, a service that is out there. So there's all kinds of stuff in there. And the one at the end is about whether the um, approved or not non-profit surrogacy organisations should be, should be regulated. And that was something that the, the law commissions were looking at in their consultation. And maybe something that happens, it looks like it's going to happen, doesn't it? And maybe the HFEA will regulate in some way. And at first I was a bit, I don't know about that, but I've come around because actually I think it's about legitimacy and about having a correct way to do things. There may be different versions of correct ways to do things, depending on who you work with, that everything is that front-loaded as Natalie said, like there's a there's a way to do this ethically and uh, sensibly and with the best interest of the child and the family in mind. 
Um, what next? We went to the Law Commission, they'll do it. Parliamentary time must be set aside. Um, you know, it is possible that it might not be. Um, I hope not, fingers crossed. Um, but I firmly believe that any debates that come, so that's public debate and parliamentary debates, must be informed by the best evidence that's available, not just supposition, not what happened on EastEnders, um, and by you know real lived experience of people. The issues with that that we're running out of time in this parliament, Liz mentioned that you know that it's likely to be after the next general election that this even gets parliamentary time and because of that, because we don't know what's going to happen in the next general election in particular, we need commitment from both um, the current government and the current opposition uh, that this will stay on the agenda post-general election. And one of the things that's been sort of hinted at is that there is a strong voice minority opinion out there which is becoming increasingly prominent. And I don't think it's any coincidence that that voice is ramping up in the time just as we're expecting Law Commission to report. And that's me. Brilliant. Thank you, Kirsty. And now we're going to, so far we've been hearing about law reform um, in the UK, but Isabel's going to give us a slightly different perspective on some issues that are, have arisen um, in the Australian context. So um, obviously it's important that countries learn from each other. Yes. Thanks. Hi, and thank you for um, including me in this panel. I'm a bit of an interloper because coming from Australia, all of this kind of reform that you're talking about um, is not something that's uh, happening in the same way. One of the reasons is that the Australian context, we have a federal system, so we have Commonwealth laws, but we also have state-based regulation of surrogacy, which means that we have different kinds of surrogacy laws in different states, and so there's no kind of consistency. Um, the other reason I'm sort of an interloper is because I'm the, the work that I'm doing is looking more at what do we do in terms of protecting the participants in surrogacy um, rather than, you know, should it be legal or not and how do we kind of manage the, um, the uh, issues of paid and unpaid surrogacy, although that of course is a big issue in Australia as well and uh, commercial surrogacy is not allowed and um, and it's even criminalized to go we do have people going overseas to um, access commercial surrogacy but uh, there are three places in australia the act new south wales and queensland which actually make it a criminal offense to go overseas to access surrogacy now it's never been uh, acted upon people have not been charged but we do have people who will move states in order to access those services so we've got the same problem of there being inadequate um, provisions in Australia to allow or facilitate surrogacy arrangements that are properly supported and regulated and um, operate with what you would think of be the appropriate protections in place. Um, and the, the kind of um, thing that I'm interested in, though, which may come up at some point in your whole process of reforming the law is how um, disability gets managed in the context of surrogacy. Um, you may have heard there's been many of those sort of media-driven cases. I don't know, a few years ago there was the case of Baby Gammy, it might have been a 10 years ago now, uh, where you know it was um, alleged that someone had gone overseas to uh, to uh, use a surrogate and 
the baby was uh, disabled and they were leaving that child behind. Um, but what I guess, um, so there's all sorts of concerns there about how we actually um, manage the kinds of uh, aspects of the process which are not governable if you allow people, if, if people are, are resorting to going overseas uh, to, to act, to go around the law. So in Australia, one of the things that we are advocating is that we allow these practices in Australia so we can then regulate them. And in the context of disability, this means also being able to regulate uh, the uh, scrutiny and surveillance of the women who are acting as surrogates in the context of um, the requirements for genetic testing or, or prenatal testing and the follow-up consequences of that testing. And I suppose one of the key things that's um, uh, Apart from the fact that uh, there's this kind of assumption that everyone's trying to desperately avoid any possible kind of any uh, anomalous or difference or disability, uh, which is simply not the case. In fact, in the study that we did, which Emily was part of in Australia, where we interviewed over 96 people who were involved in surrogacy and other forms of um, reproductive technology, um, 22 of them talked about disability and out of those 22, most of them came to the point at the end of the process, so they'd been through various um, uh, steps, you know, towards which ended them up with surrogacy of failed IVF and miscarriages and all sorts of um, uh, attempts that had not succeeded. So sometimes these people who've been going through the process for years and years and years and then resorted to surrogacy because they had no choice. And then when the limits of surrogacy in Australia took over, they then resorted to travelling overseas. Um, and what's interesting about people in those situations is when it comes to disability, there's a lot more contingent kind of response to disability than when uh, it's at the beginning of the process. So people who had been going through this process for a long time were much more willing to accept the possibility of disability in their future child if it meant that they were going to have a child. So why am I talking about this? Well, one of the reasons is that the work that I do is um, in the area of disability is to try and create uh, more of an acceptance of um, uh, different kinds of uh, ways of being in the world, I guess. But one of the other things that I'm uh, interested in is what happens when we are faced with new technologies. So in the context of surrogacy, one of the newest kinds of concerns is what they're calling epigenetic surrogacy. So this is, epigenetics is a, a, a sort of new, well, newish, it's, it's, it's got a long history, but it's becoming much more um, prevalent as a, as a research study for scientists who are looking at the ways in which it is not our genes necessarily that determine, you know, illness and harm, but it's the life experiences that cause genes to be expressed or not expressed. So you might have um, a trauma which uh, forces, which creates um, uh, 
hormones or cortisol in your system, which then leads to harmful changes in your epigenetic mechanisms. Now, in the case of women, they are being um, hyper-surveilled in relation to this because it's the uterine environment that's seen as the most susceptible. So there's now a whole bunch of people in the United States offering surrogacy at a sort of premium whereby you can have that kind of epigenetic uh, impact assessed so that you can get a surrogate who is not going to be epigenetically problematic. Um, and it all sounds a bit science fiction, but the, uh, I, I was going to put up on a slide, but I won't bother, I don't think. Uh, there is like um, Santa Monica Fertility, for instance, has you know, a whole heading on its website, surrogacy and epigenetics, and we ensure that our surrogates you know, are not going to be um, causing those sorts of concerns, but you know, if you need to talk about it, we can talk about it. And the, um, the, the risk, I guess, that I see happening with the way in which we regulate surrogacy with our kind of you know, obsession with whether it's paid and, and the transfer of parentage and all that sort of stuff is that we lose sight of ways to protect people who are directly involved in it from that kind of control and um, surveillance. So you might have women who are now being policed around their sort of lifestyle and behaviours uh, when they come to become um, surrogates. So I guess that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in following up on and I don't know how it will pan out in the sort of larger picture of law reform here but it certainly is a, is a concern when the sort of um, issues about how we engage in um, surrogacy sort of forget the minutiae of what happens then and during the process of the whole actual, um, you know, fertility uh, journey. Um, so yes, so I, I, I guess that, that's what I am interested in seeing some kind of recognition of in, in all of these debates about surrogacy is how we actually frame that in light of the larger kind of way in which artificial tech, uh, re reproductive technology tends to be geared towards avoiding disability. I think that's Great. Really Thank you. So before I open it up to questions to the floor, do any of you have anything you want to say in relation to what each other have said? Um, and then we'll go to questions from the floor. Nothing? The yes. only thing I would say is uh, with the APPG, one of the things that Kirsty uh, didn't mention was that when we did our, um, uh, our, our, our report, our investigations, our report, we specifically invited people who disagree with sur surrogacy to be part of the um, discussion because it was important to do that. We didn't necessarily agree with what they had to say, but we did invite them and make sure that they had a voice. Thanks, Liz. Any questions or comments? I'll take a few. Um, so you first, and then I'll come to you. Hello. Um, so thank you so much for sharing um, your kind of comments. But um, I just wanted to ask, there was um, a kind of a consistent theme across um, all of the speakers, emphasizing the participants of surrogacy being uh, either being the families and children, but there was kind of an invisibility around uh, the surrogate themselves and their rights. 
Um, and Sophie Lewis uh, recently in Full Surrogacy now spoke about kind of conceptualizing the surrogate as kind of a worker and giving them workers' rights, um, specifically in terms of global fertility chains in India and surrogates in India. So I was just wondering um, your comments on kind of protecting the rights of the surrogate as a kind of a worker, in essence, because pregnancy is quite an arduous process. There's a lot of kind of emotional, physical processes that are involved in pregnancy and that's sometimes ignored. And then um, the other question I had is uh, completely different, but with the kind of, um, kind of ubiquity of surrogacy now on kind of things like in reality television, where it seems to be almost an option that is very easily accessible to the majority of people who have kind of access to it via either money or kind of access in terms of the kind of health that they're afforded, is there a kind of a change in the language and the perception of accessibility of uh, surrogacy? So you spoke about the fact that people go overseas because they find that it's not as easy here because it's not as clear about their rights, but is there now a language that's emerging that people almost feel entitled to surrogacy if they're unable to have children in other ways? I'm going to take a few, because there's quite a few hands. I know, I've seen you at the back, but there was another one here who could use the, yeah, you with the, and then I'll come to you, um, and then we'll come to you at the back. Hi, thanks so much for the talk. Um, this was kind of a similar question, but I saw on quite a few of the slides it was talking about how it needs to be a more defined reasonable expense and what that means, because I know there was also talk about the need for it to be regulated to avoid women being exploited. And I was wondering what regulations you would like to see in practice and what you would consider a reasonable, reasonable expense to be. Because um, I know it might depend on a lot of different things, but if there is regulation to be set out for the UK, it would have to be, like I guess, standardised to some extent. So I was just wondering on your opinions on that. Thank you. And we've got a hand at the back as well. And then we'll, I'll, I'll, I've got your view for the next round. We'll take these three questions and then we'll take a, another round. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Yeah, um, I, I'm just asking a question. Has surrogacy laws affected social care support to natural birth mothers? and as, as caregivers and providers first and foremost? Or and has it diminished natural birth mothers' rights in the process towards enabling other people to afford um, babies, <laughs> embryos or, or designer babies or whatever? Yeah. Thank you. So three questions. Um, anyone like to, um, or four questions, I guess you had two. Um, anyone like to um, start? Um, I think if I... I think the importance of language and the evolution of language around this is incredibly important. Um, and uh, I think we have, uh, in the last 40 years or whatever, uh, we've made a small change from surrogate mother to surrogates and understanding that being a surrogate is a distinct role. Um, on your proposal about whether or not we conceptualise a surrogate as a worker, 
I, I, feel, I feel very um, un, unhappy about that. Um, on the one hand, it is absolutely right to recognise the role, the contribution, uh, and, and what that surrogate does. It's a tremendous thing that surrogates do. Um, and many of them do that uh, in ways which are extremely altruistic. But other people will talk about the issue of expenses in more, in more detail than, uh, than, I, than I can. But the organisations that work in the United Kingdom, and I can't talk in any knowledgeable way about abroad, encourage relationships between the intended parents and the surrogates long before the surrogacy process happened. And many, I think I'm right, that not all, but, but the most successful relationships are ones in which the surrogate is seen as part of an extended re relationship, that, that sometimes part of family. So to reduce that to being a transactional relationship of a worker and an employer, I think would be wrong. Because I think for most of the people involved, it is something more than that. But that's not in any way to minimise the contribution that they make. Reality TV, I'm sorry, I'm the last person in the world. I mean, if you're talking Kardashian, I mean, I know they exist, but I, I, but, but what I what I would say is, I don't watch reality TV. I do read newspapers. I do get very fed up with um, articles that write, you know, that talk about surrogacy as being a fashion thing, you know, people having babies as a sort of fashion. Um, that's not, that is not what the people that I've been involved with, who are trying to, have spent years trying to work on surrogacy law reform, are about. They are about enabling different families to come to solutions um, which are right for them and for, and for their children. And to the, 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 the person at the back, um, support, for, support for birth mothers is not great. It really isn't great, but I don't think that I don't think that the that, that what happens with surrogacy is the biggest determining factor in the lack of support for birth, birth mothers. I think there's a whole I think there's a whole load of whole load of other ones. I don't <coughs> think support for surrogates diminishes support for birth mothers. I think there's whole other reasons why that happens. Any other comments? Yeah, I mean, I think I can answer your questions, both of you, in a kind of slightly more general way, but I think. Um, none of us on the panel here, I'm sure, would want to in any way suggest surrogates were invisible in this process. So they are absolutely core to it. And I think, you know, when we're thinking about these issues, it's very much about what makes a surrogacy arrangement an ethical surrogacy arrangement. And for me, that's about all the adults involved being fully informed and giving full consent to what they're going into. It's about making sure that the rights of the child are considered and protected in terms of preservation of information and you know, those sorts of things. And I think at the core of it, having a relationship between the parties where there is a, a fair balance of power um, and ultimately a relationship. You know, it's not a transaction. It's about you know, everybody coming together and working as a team to conceive this child. And everybody's rights in that are absolutely important. You know, we don't want an imbalance in any direction. Um, and I think, to come to your question about the expenses and so on, I think you know, we have to look at 
you know, what, how, do we, how do we create the environment in which surrogacy arrangements work like that in that very positive way? Um, and the issues around expenses, I think, sometimes can be a bit of a false flag because I think there can be a, a temptation to look at, you know, a surrogacy arrangement is exploitative if there's money involved and it's not exploitative if it's altruistic and it's, there's no money involved. And actually it isn't that simple. Um, you know, we, for example, see in US surrogacy cases where surrogates are paid compensation, but there is a very strong personal relationship between parents and surrogates, which endures into the future in exactly the same way as surrogacy arrangements in the UK. So it's not the presence or absence of money being involved that, that matters for that. And I think we have to be pragmatic in terms of regulating how expenses are dealt with, because the reality on the ground in the UK is that many surrogates it's dealt with in a very loose way. So, you know, there is not a strict itemization of expenses as it exists at the moment. There is often an element of compensation, if you like, in a, in a general way, whether you call that a recuperation holiday or whether you agree a kind of round sum that, you know, you're not quantifying directly. And I think, you know, the, the idea of their, the parents wanting to be able to provide an acknowledgement for the surrogate for her inconvenience and, you know, everything that she's going through beyond just her out-of-pocket costs is very normal, but we need to underpin that with making sure that there is that lack of exploitation, that everybody is fully informed, that nobody is being taken advantage of, there is a fair balance of power. And I think if you put those safeguards in place, you can be more relaxed about needing to restrict the financial side of things. Um, and I think, you know, there's lots of discussion around should we allow surrogates to be paid? I don't think that's really the issue. The issue is payments are going to happen. So how do we prevent exploitation in that context? And I think we have to be grown up, and I think we have to be pragmatic about that. Any other questions? Yeah, I mean, I think what I was trying to do was actually put the surrogate woman in front and centre, because what I see as a risk always in the case of these things where reproduction is being regulated, which it is in this kind of intense way, is that women become the subject of this kind of public scrutiny. And in the case of surrogates, you've got another level of scrutiny because you've got them being required to um, be healthy and have the right nutrition and undergo all the appropriate tests um, and make the right decisions in relation to, you know, if there is any issue that arises. So I just see that, that, that there's a problem when we come to be regulating this area that we're not thinking about making sure that she isn't put in a position where she has to make decisions that are um, not protecting her interests, put it that way. That, it, that it's, you know, in, in, in this process of negotiation between all the various parties involved, that there should be something in place that actually ensures that those normal coercions that we feel over pregnancy, like, you know, that women have to be responsible in relation to their pregnancies and so on, are also front and centre and not I guess not exaggerated, made worse. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. We've got another round of questions. I've got you, but I think you might have a microphone already in the middle. Yes, you in the blue shirt. Yes, I'll come to you then. Hi, thanks for that. It was a really, really interesting talk. Um, I just wanted to ask about, it kind of expands on what you've already said, um, uh, Natalie, but um, about this distinction between altruistic surrogacy and commercial surrogacy, uh, the UK is quite clear that it is, you know, it follows an altruistic surrogacy model. So how does that, how is that compatible with the fact that surrogates are receiving payments above reasonable expenses 
and do you therefore accept, expect that the um, commission report that's going to come out in a few months' time, around the springtime, will you know advocate for a commercial for a move towards a commercial surrogacy model, and is that likely to change in the UK? And I also wanted to ask. Um, this goes towards what you were saying, Isabel, about Australia, you know, being a federal system and having different systems according to states. It's the same thing in Canada, same thing in the US. Um, it's understandable why there would be different models, you know, in different countries and regions of the world with, you know, either ultra surrogacy, commercial surrogacy, surrogacy is banned or it's tolerated but not enshrined in law. I understand that, you know, country to country. Why do you think there's such a difference when it comes to region to region? Because it is the same country, the same culture, more or less the same religion. Why? What explains the variation region to region? Thank you. There's another question down here. Um, oh yes. Hi, um, I'm Krina. I'm actually an intended mother and a mum of four children, born through surrogacy in the UK. Um, first of all, Baroness Barker, thank you for your comments about language. Um, as an intended mother, I get really emotional about language sometimes, and I think quite often we're forgotten for the grief and trauma we go through before we arrive at a surrogacy journey um, and grieving your ability to carry a pregnancy is, is massive. So thank you. Um, myself and Fran here, we, we're both, as I said, intended mothers and we actually have an organisation called The Intended Parent that is set up for uh, couples who come to surrogacy on an independent basis. So um, as we alluded to, social media or friends and family becoming surrogates for one another. Um, we, we heard both from all of you guys actually, but from Kirsty and Natalie more so about authorised um, organisations being regulated when it comes to law reform. My concern is always that as a woman who went through surrogacy and couldn't get in through the agency route, you know, for some that's a financial burden that's too big or it's um, ratios and, and agencies being um, at capacity so intended parents can't be brought onto books, many people in those circumstances do turn to independent surrogacy um, where there is a thriving community of support um, of, within IPs and surrogates. If we only allow organisations that are currently authorised, or that, you know, if, if the current not-for-profits are going to be the only regulated authorities, what happens to that community of independent surrogacy, um, both surrogates and intended parents? And is there room for new organisations to become authorised. For example, you know, we, we have worked quite hard to create a community of independent, um, of, of independent surrogates and um, IPs particularly, educate them, create courses, create valuable material to try, and, to try and streamline and bring governance to the process as much as we can as people who aren't registered um, agencies. So is there going to be a, a capacity for that under the reform? And then Secondary to that is something that um, we lead on to about this designer surrogacy um, situation. I think the, with the way the law stands at the moment, you have to really want your child um, to jump through the number of loops that you have to jump through um, to go through the UK process. If, it's, if it does become easy, super easy, um, is there going to be a potential for people who simply don't want their body to change due to pregnancy to look to surrogacy? Is there, um, are we opening the door for, for other route, are people who wouldn't have considered surrogacy to come into the surrogacy space because they know they'll become legal parents of that child where at the moment those who don't are willing to, to wait for the parental order because we go into it knowing that. Thank you. 
Thank you so much to everyone on the panel. Each one of you um, spoke about issues that I'm going to spend a long time thinking about. So please forgive my question if it's not precise enough. Um, I think what I understand is that what's pushing the law here is the desire for family. It's a family formation sort of um, idea. And that to some extent, that the law is being pushed really from a I mean, I hate to say bottom up, but from parents, for future parents, prospective parents, from couples and not couples. So I wonder how can you think about the fact that surrogacy, like any form of um, IVF or of assisted fertility, is not necessarily a done deal at the time that you're making contract or at the time that you're making the the regulation, it's very difficult because you could have the best relationship ever but have no child as a result of it. And because of that, I wonder if there will always be, you know, a kind of a neoliberal, I have the money, I'm going to go pay for it approach. Because that, as, as um, the lady who just spoke said, the desire to have a child is so, so profound. I mean, I suppose what I'm really asking is that agency between women and families in family formation can take many different forms. But at the bottom line, uh, isn't the law going to be pushed by this sort of desire to have a child? And won't that be addressed in a much more sort of capitalistic, I'll go anywhere, do anything if I can afford it way? Thank you. Okay, so comments. I don't think we've got time. We might be running out of time. We'll come to you if we do. But um, we've got three questions. There's a lot there. So if you'd like to kick off, shall I take the altruistic commercial <laughs> sure, address? Then we. Um, I, I mean, we the Law Commission Provisional Report has kind of sat on the fence in terms of the issue of payments, and it's kind of seeking to clarify different categories and think about different options. So we don't really know the direction of travel. Um, but I think you know there is resistance to what's seen as kind of moving towards a commercial model here. But I think what we need to be clear about is that these questions are not binary questions. So when people talk about commercial surrogacy, that you know, do you mean is the surrogate going to be compensated and to what level? Do you mean should profit-making intermediaries be able to kind of facilitate arrangements? Do you mean, are there contracts that are legally recognized? So there's different kind of components of what we're talking about here. I think in respect of the kind of intermediary question, the Law Commission has been very clear that they're not looking to move towards a commercial model, that you know, intermediaries will remain non-profit. I don't think there's any particular opposition to that. I think the issues, I mean, as I've just mentioned, the issues around what surrogates are compensated, you know, I think we need to be quite careful about understanding that what already happens is quite flexible. And if in seeking to provide clarity, we actually tighten up what surrogates can be paid, that it might have a negative effect on access to surrogacy in the UK that will drive more people overseas. So these sorts of questions are, you know, quite complex and quite nuanced. And I think, you know, certainly our perspective is that surrogates should be free to choose if they wish to be paid no more than their strict out-of-pocket expenses, fine. If they want to be paid an acknowledgement for their pain and discomfort or whatever that is reasonable as well, that could be included as part of the expenses. 
whether you call it a recuperation holiday or something else. Um, so I think that, you know, when people say, should we have altruistic or commercial surrogacy, it's, it's not that simple. You know, these are quite complex questions. Um, and in terms of access to surrogacy with independence, I think um, it depends what the Law Commission recommends and what kind of model of regulation there is. But I think the idea is that as many of the independent groups that want to kind of take responsibility for you know, following the pathway and doing things will be eligible to be part of that scheme if they want to be. Um, and I think the organisations are also looking for people who've already matched outside to then be able to kind of get signed off if they've done things with an organisation. So that there should be ways of, you know, we absolutely with this law reform don't want to cut down access. That's the very opposite of what we're trying to achieve. So I, I think that's very important. And just, there's been a few questions which have touched on you know, designer babies and, you know, will people do this just because they can't be bothered to be pregnant, that kind of stuff. I have never, in any of the cases I have ever dealt with, seen that happen. You know, parents, if they're able to carry a pregnancy, want to carry a pregnancy. You know, the, the people that engage in surrogacy have no other option, and I think it's really important that we remember that. Kirsty, yeah, I, I was going to say, I've just I've done some empirical work recently with um, a group of surrogates and then a group of intended parents, and I was just going to say, from the, from the surrogates' perspective, are you saying that the, the, sort of the parents and families are, are what's driving the law, but the surrogates are overwhelmingly in, in favour of law reform. They are also pushing for it, so their voice I think, is, is both strong and really important. That they, they're, they're working currently in the law as it is, uh, but they would like to see the law uh, differently, and the, the biggest thing I think that has surprised um, policymakers and lawmakers was that surrogates didn't want to be recognised as legal mothers at birth for all kinds of different reasons, not least having the responsibility of um, being medical consent and you know and all that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so there's you know big groundswell of, of support there. Also, some some other work I've done like that commercial altruistic um, um, distinction. I think even in you know, Mark. Um, Jurisdictions where we might call it commercial, like you know, California, yeah, the motivations of surrogates may still be completely altruistic, even if they are being compensated. So I don't think I've, I've yet to come across someone who said, you know what, I'm going to be a surrogate for a laugh or for the money or anything like that. Like, there are easier ways um, to make money than to be a surrogate, I think. And it's the same question about. Um, you know, what about the surrogate you know, wanting to keep the baby? You know, your, your soap opera storyline, which, you know, if you were writing a soap opera, of course that's the storyline you're going to write, but isn't that, uh, you know, it's so rare as to be, uh, you know, a vanishing possibility. But there are easier ways to have your own children as well, if you are able to carry a child, than to go through a surrogacy in order to do that. And so I, I think that risk, that lots of these things, um, the sort of early report showed that lots of these things are about perception, a perception that it's likely a surrogate would run away with a baby, a perception that you must not um, pay any money other than you know receipted expenses and all that kind of thing. And people were, you know, people I've interviewed have been scared about doing the wrong thing according to the law because then they don't think they'll get their, their baby. Um, even though, and particularly a baby that's biologically theirs, you know, that 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 impetus is even sort of stronger, I think, that the, 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 the fear is real. Um, and it you know, comes through in, in the interviews and the surveys that I've done. 
Yeah, yeah, just first of all, the commercial, non-commercial thing. I, I think that the language is really important because I would say all surrogacy is commercial in the sense that there are people being paid, doctors, lawyers, um, fertility clinics, genetic, genetic uh, geneticists and, and so on are being paid. The only people that, that there's a question mark around being paid are the women themselves who are providing the surrogacy service. Um, so in that context, I think of it more as paid and unpaid surrogacy. In terms of Australia and the sort of variation among jurisdictions, I mean, that is largely, I would say, just um, based on the sort of political fervour that operates at any particular given time. So the whole hysteria around people travelling overseas to access commercial or paid surrogacy um, is what drove the sort of New South Wales government at the time to, to criminalise it. Um, you know, even though someone like Nicole Kidman was off getting, um, using a surrogate and then coming to Australia to live for a period of time. So, you know, and, and of course they didn't charge her under the Act. Um, so, so I don't think that there's necessarily a rational kind of explanation for those differences. I think it is very much you know, what is the hot kind of issue that arises at that moment and it tends to be driven by those most vocal people. Thank you. I think, I think we're just about out of time. Um, I think there's one question in the middle though and one there. So maybe if we can make these questions quite brief and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Okay, thank you. Um, I was just to ask about like, will there be like any possibility of like implementing the law in the international state? Because actually like I'm from Thailand and I remember like in seven years ago, yeah, I was the journalist and the producer of doing like a surrogate case in Thailand, yeah. And I would give the example, two examples of like the case, so from the Australia and like from the Japan, yeah. And then we were, like in the Thailand, we were named as baby factories, you know. So mm -hmm. there, there were a lot of couples of like foreign countries, and then they paid a lot of not a lot of money for for them, yeah, but for us to the surrogate mothers, you know, for for the purpose of like oh they want to have a child. Uh -huh. And so the one case of Australia, there were like twins, I mm. remember, right? And then the twin, like who, were, who was strong, mm. he was, he, he can't go to Australia, but mm. the one who got drowned syndrome, mm. yeah, he need to be left in Thailand and put the responsibility of that surrogate martyr to responsibility of pay, pay all everything for, for the child. And for the Japanese case that I have done, and he has like kind of, strange reason, you know, to have the, the, the 13 kids because he wants that kids to have like a, inherit his business. Yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah. This thank is you. A, uh, sorry. Well, thank you very much. That we'll take this, if you can make the question quite brief because we're just about out of time. Thank okay, you. Thank you. My f first question quite simple. So I'm wondering whether there is actual case law on the debate between whether arrangement is a commercial versus altruistic surrogacy case. I can totally imagine cases where young women got themselves as an intended mother, but like their family members may later realize that this is not necessarily a good arrangement, may try to debate that 
the, the surrogacy arrangements is actually illegal based on that it might be a commercial arrangement. So is there any case law on these debates? And Thank my you. second question is now that... Really brief. Yes, now that the path to a parental order is getting expedited, do you think it might open doors to people who might otherwise seek commercial surrogacy overseas to get back to the UK, you know, and try to arrange this sort of commercial exploitation on young women? Thank you. Most of the case law from the last 15 years is exactly that. Um, so it's, it's Hang on, we, we, we're kind of out of time. So I think, I think what Natalie's saying is loads of the cases that are decided in UK courts involve people who have gone overseas and paid, and then parental orders are, are granted because it's in the best interest of the child. So that's a lot of the case law. Is that, yeah. is that right, Natalie? Same in Australia. The same as in Australia. Can I take on the international yes, question? I mean, a very interesting point that you raise. There are lots and lots of um, issues about uh, rights of children internationally, including uh, adoption and so on. And we don't have, uh, I mean, yes, we have, con you know, convention sorry, conventions on the rights of the child. We have not yet got anywhere near any kind of international uh, standard uh, uh, on, on, on those matters, which is... Uh, rec recognised even by the majority of countries, never mind all countries. Uh, that's not a reason not to keep fighting for universal rights for children. Yeah. On that note, I think that's a good note to, to end. So um, if you'd like to join me in thanking our panel and thank you for all for your Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.